0: Well, hey, we're going to continue our series on secure. This morning is is a start of a bunch of Sundays that I want to consider objections to eternal security. There's lots of uh, potential objections out there. In fact, as I have been working through the messages the last few weeks, I know that some have been screaming, yeah, but what about Hebrews 10? What about Hebrews 6? What about John 15? What about... Fill in your own blank. I realize that. And so I don't want to just not address those things. I don't want to leave those kind of, those, that thinking just hanging out there. And at the same time, I, I realize that we're not going to be able to cover everything comprehensively. And so if I don't cover your what about, I'm sorry. Maybe we can do it on a personal level over lunch sometime. But that's going to be the goal the rest of the series is just looking at different objections to eternal security. And in terms of just organizing how we're going to do this, I want to start with the gospels. And then I want to work through Paul's epistles. And then I want to work through the general epistles. And that's going to take us a few weeks to do that. And so this morning we want to start with the gospels. And you know, one of the, the, one of the things that often comes up in the area of eternal security is people will say, you can be saved. You can know that you're saved. But if you commit a certain type of sin, Normally, they at that point categorize, you know, worser, as my son Tobin says, worser sins than other sins, right? They, they categorize big sins and small sins. And if you commit a, a, you know, a really big sin in their thinking, then you can lose your salvation. Where other people will say, well, it's not, not really a specific sin, but it's a pattern or a habitual lifestyle where you could either lose your salvation or you, could, you would prove that you never were saved. And regardless of how they come at that angle, they they both end up in the same place. In fact, if I were to take the two theological extremes that most people think of in terms of Arminian and Calvinism, and I were to give you quotes on this area of assurance, do you know that if I didn't tell you who it was, that oftentimes you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between an Arminian and a Calvinist? And and many times you think that's like the distinguishing feature of those two theological schools. It's like, oh yeah, Calvinism believes in eternal security, once saved, always saved. And actually they don't. And actually when you begin to to sift through those quotes, you realize that they are still basing our salvation on faith in Christ plus ongoing faithfulness in our life to be saved. And both of them come at it from that different angles. And so they end up in the same place. And so as a quick review before we get into the objections, you know, when we talk about eternal security, we've been using this definition because I just, I like it. It's not, I mean, it's as succinct as a theological definition can be, right? It's not succinct by any stretch of the imagination, but let's read through it. Eternal security means that one who has been genuinely saved by God's grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone shall never be in danger of God's condemnation or loss of his salvation, but are kept forever saved and secure by God's grace and power. And see, human experience oftentimes views this through a different lens. And we begin to look at what we see in life and begin to trust our own evaluation of what's going on. We see people in their lives portrayed on Facebook and we say, well, ah, they, there's no way they can be saved. If they were saved, they would never do that. And we begin to trust our own evaluation of who's saved and who's not saved instead of trusting the word of God and allowing that to remain as an authority over even our own evaluations on whether or not people are saved. And I've heard people say, I once knew a person, maybe you've said this, maybe you've thought this, maybe you've known someone like this. I, they say, I once knew a person who claimed to be saved, but then he did X, Y, Z sin, or he did, he began to live a life X, Y, Z way, and therefore he could never be a Christian. He never was really saved or or he lost his salvation. And you've, you've heard comments like that. And oftentimes there are people in our lives that push us almost to that brink, like, wow, how in the world could they be that sinful and that obnoxiously opposed to the things of the Lord? And we begin to kind of think this way and we begin to trust our evaluation of things. And I want to encourage us to, as we get in, especially into these objections that we just this whole topic, along with every topic when we come to the Word of God, that we would allow the Word of God to remain in authority over us and our evaluations, that we would reject our thinking and our evaluations when they're in contradiction to God's evaluation and thinking. And that's the encouragement. You know, I was told a funny story months ago. I had a friend of mine whose son actually went on a medical mission trip. And he went to a a third world country, which I can't remember the country now, but that detail is not pertinent to the story. But he was in a third world country. And one of the things they were doing is they were setting up a clinic in a village where they were teaching the word of God. And so they set up the clinic. And the first thing you do when you set up a clinic in a third world country is what? Well, as people come in, you get their vitals. It's kind of an interesting thing. They get their vitals, they take their temperature, they take their pulse. And the first guy walked in and, and my, my friend Sonny went to go get a, a pulse and he couldn't find one. And he's, well, let me try up here. Couldn't find one. Tried the other hand, couldn't find one. And so everyone knows medically, right? When you don't have a pulse, what's that mean? You're dead. But this dead man walked right into the... <laughs> into the makeshift tent, but he had no pulse. But you know what another symptom of having an unreadable pulse is? Dehydration, extreme dehydration. And by the way, that wasn't the only man that walked into the tent that day that he couldn't find a pulse on. And there's a lot of dehydration issues there. But again, if he trusted his evaluation, they might've said, look, I don't care if this guy walked in, I can't find a pulse, let's go bury him. Like he's he's gone. And I don't care if he kicks and screams about it, throw him in the hole you know? But that just, again, just gives us perspective that our evaluation is not always accurate. In fact, when we look at the topic of eternal security, eternal security, when we use the word, we're talking about the certainty of a person's salvation from God's viewpoint. In other words, God knows who has trusted in his son alone for salvation and who has not, period. He knows it. And it's never in doubt because of the promises he makes the moment they believe they have eternal life. They'll never perish on and on. Their sins are forgiven. We could go on and on. Whereas assurance, when we talk about assurance of salvation, that is the certainty of a person's salvation from man's viewpoint. That tends to fluctuate because often our thinking is not in line with the word of God. Often we trust our own evaluations of things. In fact, it, I, I won't ask for a show of hands, but just raise your hand in your heart this morning to this question. Those of you who believe that you're saved based on the testimony of the word of God, who have trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone, how many of you at some course of your life, whether due to sin on your part, continued sin, continued failure, have questioned your own salvation, have wondered whether or not you're truly saved? Just raise your hand in your heart. I know I have. And part of the reason, it wasn't that the word of God changed. It wasn't that God's viewpoint of my salvation changed. It was the fact that my viewpoint had changed. I was no longer trusting in what the word of God said. I was now trusting in my own evaluation. And you know what's actually more scary to me than that is the days that I actually thought I was good enough to go to heaven. That's a scary evaluation. To have that kind of pride and arrogance and not even realize that, hey, because I'm flying right now, I'm much more worthy to go to heaven. You know, I used to sit through communion services all throughout my life, the Lord's Supper. And you know what my focus was on when the cup came out? Am I worthy to take this? Not in my 1 Corinthians 11 style, am I partaking in a worthy way, but am I personally worthy to participate in this, because you know why I thought that? Because my mind wasn't on Jesus Christ remembering what he did for me. My mind was on me and my terrible week. That's off. And this is why our assurance fluctuates because we get out of line in our thinking. And so this morning, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter seven. And when we get there, I want to go to verse 20. I want to read the punchline first, and then I want to come back and, and really kind of look at this with a little bit more detail. Matthew chapter 7, verse 20, it says this, therefore by their fruits you will know them. Now, most of us know this verse. In fact, the way that it typically comes up is this. You and I know somebody who we went to church with as a little kid, who we used to go to church with, who said they were saved, who actually was involved in ministry. Maybe they went on a mission trip with us one time. They were greatly involved in church. They taught Sunday school, et cetera, et cetera. And then somehow it has come to light that they are now living a sinful life, a very sinful life, maybe very just obnoxiously sinful, externally licentiously sinful. And then the comment goes something like this. Well, do you think they're saved? And the other person will respond, well, I don't know. By their fruits, you shall know them. It's kind of like this, this quote, like, well, if they're truly saved, right? We, which, by the way, that whole adjective, we, we need to just get out of our vocabulary. You're either saved or you're not. There's no truly saved. There's no kinda saved. I mean, is anybody kind of pregnant? I mean, it just doesn't. There's just certain things where that, that these adjectives don't work. You're either saved or you ain't. You're in, in Christ or you're in Adam. You're either walking by means of the Spirit or you're walking according to the flesh. It's not like you're you're kind of walking in the Spirit. That, do, that doesn't work that way. Again, but people will say this. If you're truly saved right? This is the comment they make. By their fruits, you shall know them. In other words, the idea is that we should be able to see some external evidence of fruit bearing to know whether or not somebody's saved. Does God want Christians to bear fruit? Yes. Is God working overtime to ensure that every believer bears fruit? Yes. God wants fruit bearing in his children. But Matthew 7.20 does not teach that that's how you recognize whether or not somebody's a Christian or not. Nor does it teach that if somebody doesn't have fruit, that they're not a Christian. All right, so let's dive through because one of the things we see here is in Matthew 7.20, and I, and I say this facetiously, but it is found within a context. I think we, we know that about the scriptures, but it's like the only book in history that we can just flip to any page, anywhere in the book, read a verse and try to directly apply it without even considering what the original context was. Go read any book that that you, like any of the classics, To Kill a Mockingbird. Turn to page 201, read one sentence and tell me what what it's about. You would never do that. Pride and Prejudice. I mean, just kind of work your way through a list of classics. We could never do that. And yet we come to the word of God, Matthew 7.20. Now I know how it applies because I've never even read the context. In fact, if I were to shut our Bibles right now and say, what's the context of Matthew 7.20? How many of us would would know without quickly looking, darting our eyes around the passage right now, (laughs) trying to figure out what the context is? And we do this a lot. I'm just saying this is a very common thing that we do the context is so key do you know that the message in matthew 17 15 through 20 is part of the sermon on the mount not only that but this sermon was given during the dispensation of law now that may shock some of us because we think that the the second that page flips over to matthew 1 we're in the church age right because it's new testament we're in the church Actually, no. Jesus, Galatians 4, 4 tells us that he was born under law. He was born during the time of the Mosaic law. He is teaching to a Jewish audience under Mosaic law who is expecting one day a kingdom on earth from God. And this is the crowd that he's teaching. In fact, when we look at the crowd, we see that the message was primarily directed toward his disciples. By the way, if you've got a red letter Bible, just trace back how far the red letters go it kind of tells you that Jesus is on a monologue here of teaching. But go back to Matthew chapter 5. He says, seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, so primary audience is the disciples. But when we go to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, go with me to the end of Matthew 7, it says that by the time he had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching. So a crowd had gathered. So he's, he's addressing his disciples and he's addressing a primarily Jewish crowd. And here's what's really significant about this, especially when we start to try to yank Matthew 7 into a direct application to the church age Jesus hasn't even turned his, his attention to a Gentile audience yet. Do you know there was a time in Jesus' ministry that he actually said, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, only go to the Jews? That doesn't sound like the Great Commission. That's Matthew 28. That's after his death and resurrection. But just hold your finger there and go with me to Matthew chapter 10. This is obviously five chapters. It's uh, after the Sermon on the Mount. It's it's later in the chronology of the story. But notice what he says in Matthew 5 through seven. These 12, Jesus sent out, speaking of the disciples, and commanded them saying, do not go into the way of the Gentiles. And do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's still instructing his disciples to go to the Jews, to avoid the Gentiles, to avoid the Samaritans. Now, why is he doing that? Well, because at this point in his ministry, he is making a legitimate offer to establish the kingdom that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. But we know from John 1, what happened? What's the rest of the story? Jesus came to his own, and his own did what? They received him not. They rejected him. And so they rejected this offer of the kingdom. And so when we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, understand this. It's got a distinctly Jewish audience, but that's not to say that there aren't righteous principles that can apply across every age. I'll give you an example of one. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Does God want his children to do good works to bring him glory? Yes, that's true in every age. That's true. In the church age, we can look at Ephesians 2: 2, 2:10, 2, Titus 3:8, lots of other places. This is what God wants to accomplish through His children. It's what He wanted to accomplish through the Jewish nation under law. It's what He wants to accomplish through His children in the millennial kingdom. So we, these cut across all of these different time periods in history, but when we talk about specific context to a specific audience, we are looking for the interpretation. And this is oftentimes what happens when we come to the Sermon on the Mount. I'm kind of giving some general comments before we dive into detail in Matthew 7, 15 through 20. This is oftentimes a problem when we come to the Sermon on the Mount is that's this. We spend very little time on trying to understand the interpretation, which is original speaker to original audience. What was that message intended to be communicated? And we jump right into application. We don't see a problem in the Sermon on the Mount. But let me tell you where you'd see a problem with that approach. Judas went out and hung himself. Go thou and do likewise. You've seen how people put verses together that don't that are ripped out of context. Abraham killed his or or, or took Isaac up to sacrifice his only begotten or his only son. Oh, thus God may must want me to do that too. And see if we don't look at the interpretation first and understand the original message. From the original speaker to the original audience, and we begin to just jump in and try to start making applications, you can see where things are going to go just crazy haywire, crazy haywire. Many people do this with the Sermon on the Mount. So what is the context of Matthew 7, 15 through 20? Well, in every age of human history, consider this. Starting all the way back in the Garden of Eden with the serpent, there's truth and error, truth and error. Something is true, something is Wrong, And teachers from both sides of that equation try to influence other people with what they're teaching. There's there's an influence seeking to go on, and Jesus is warning of this possibility in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, the presence of false teachers here in this section is one of the reasons, if you jump back up with me in verse 13, he describes the way that leads to life as difficult. Why is that? Because you've got people distracting you from the way of life. They're, they're teaching you, no, no, just go this broad way. Just go through this broad gate, this, this broad way. And, and the problem is, is the broad way leads somewhere. Choices have consequences. Look at verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate. And broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it. Part of the reason for that is the influence of false teaching and false prophets because they believe the message that they're receiving, they're influenced by that, and they make a terrible choice. And you know, the the terrible choice that most people in our day are making as it relates to the gospel, you can just talk globally with people, is people think you have to be good to go to heaven. Many people believe that. They spend their entire lives trying to, to build up a level of goodness that They just hope one day that that God will accept. And many people believe that until the day they die. Many people uh, on their deathbed will give away all of their money to to religious causes thinking that one last ditch effort is gonna be enough to just just squeak them right over the top so they can roll right into heaven. And what is God's message saying in the Bible? It's the exact opposite. No one's good. No one's righteous. No one has what it takes to get to heaven, but nobody has to go to hell for it. He's provided his only son so that nobody would have to face that death penalty. And he's provided righteousness in his son that's equal to his, and that's the only way it happens. And so many people believe false teachers. Many people have a concept of, I've got to get good enough to get to heaven. And this is why it's wide. It comes in a lot of shapes, in fashions in terms of believing this false teaching. One of the other things we see in the context here is verses 15 through 20 is actually, again, part of a larger teaching. It's just one of three, what I would call pairs comparisons that Jesus uses in this section to illustrate that choices have consequences. What was the first pair? Well, look up verse 13 and 14. Narrow gate, wide gate, broad path, difficult path. There's this pairs comparison. Verses 15 through 20, we have the pairs comparison between two types of teachers, one who teaches truth, one who teaches error. And then we'll jump to verse 24 and we see two different types of builders, one who built on a rock, one who built on sand. So you've got these, these pairs that he's compare, um, comparing, sorry, I lost the word, comparing there. And then in, in between in verse 21 and 23, he gives an example of when you choose falsely. Because it looks like you can do everything right. Hey, we're casting out demons in your name. We're prophesying in your name. And you still don't get in. And this is the problem with false teaching is they're going to emphasize religion. They're going to emphasize religious things. And that's not the way to heaven. And so Jesus uses that as an illustration. So this is the context that we find ourselves in. And so in verse 20, again, this verse is often used to describe how you can tell if someone's a true believer or not. Okay, this is, we're kind of leading up here. Now, the problem with this interpretation is if we read verse 15, we can see it's not speaking of false Christians. It's speaking of false prophets. It's a different thing. He's not saying, how can you tell if there's a false Christian? It's not what he says at all. Verse 15, it's not, it doesn't even fit the context of what he's describing. In verse 15, In fact, he specifically says in verse 15, beware of false prophets, not beware of false Christians. Look at verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Who by their fruits? False prophets. And this is what he comes back to in verse 20. So we'll kind of get there, but look at the... Description of the false prophet here. This is very important to understand, especially as it relates to the false use of this verse to to say that it exposes false Christians. Notice the first description of verse 15. They outwardly wear sheep's clothing. You know what that means? That means externally, they look good. They look like the real deal. They look genuine. They look like disciples of Jesus Christ. They look like the the ones you want to follow. They look like they've got it all together religiously and spiritually. This is what we're talking about here. They got sheep's clothing. They look just like a sheep. They look just like that. Look like the real deal. They probably sound like them, smell like them, whatever, right? That's the emphasis here. Externally, they look like the real deal. But then we get the second description. By the way, Let me just make a comment before I leave this picture because it's very important. Because when people apply this to false Christians and they say, well, yeah, Christian, you got to know, you know them by their fruit if they're really saved. What are they typically appealing to when they use that verse? They're appealing to the fact that their external life does not look good. They're appealing to the fact that externally they look very sinful, that they're engaged in really evil licentious things. Is that what this passage is teaching at all? That they look like sheep? No, I mean, this passage is teaching they look like sheep. When people misuse the verse, what are they teaching? They don't look like sheep. They look like total scumbags. (laughs) They look like wolves. In fact, for people to be able to use this verse the way they do it, they'd have to actually flip these two descriptions and say, you know what? Outwardly, they look like wolves, but they pretend to be like sheep inwardly that's not what this passage is teaching at all. It's the exact opposite. In fact, we get the second description. Inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. They look good on the outside. They appear to be a genuine disciple, but they are very dangerous. You can imagine a wolf just running around in a sheep pen looking like that. I mean, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and no one's even going to know. He's just going to get away with everything. And they've got an issue. They don't care who they harm in the process. And then he says that they can be known by their fruits. And so what are the fruits of a false prophet? That's the million-dollar question. It's definitely not their lives. Why is it not their lives? Because they look like sheep. Their lives are impeccable. In fact, I think you see them described in verses 21 and 22. They look like the real deal. Their life may even center around Jesus. They might even yell and scream Jesus's name in meetings and and cry and really just act like they're into the things of God. And yet, that's not what they're really into. Because as Jesus is going to say in verse 23, "I, I never knew you. You were never Born again. You're trusting in your religious works. You're not trusting in my finished work. There's a difference there. And so they look like the real deal. So what is the fruit of false teachers, false prophets? It's false teaching. That's the fruit. That's how you know them. How does this fit? By by the way, let me just finish this point. So when a prophet or teacher's teaching does not line up with the word of God, they are to be rejected as producing false fruit and being a bad tree. Now, how does this fit with the Sermon on the Mount? Well, and and by the way, who do you think Jesus is talking to here? Uh, Talking about? He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to a multitude. Anyone you can think of in the gospels that looks really good on the outside, but it's not really good on the inside. It's the Pharisees. This is a shot at the Pharisees. This is who he's been attacking the entire Sermon on the Mount, if you will. And I can show you the the key or the theme verse to the entire sermon is Matthew 520. Just kind of flip there. And he says this, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And then look at verse 21. What you're going to see is a, a series of six comparisons if we were to go through it. You have heard that it was said to those, verse 22, but I say it to you. And what Jesus does is he systematically dismantles the false teaching of the Pharisees as it relates to righteousness, and he reveals God's true righteous standard. That's what he does in the Sermon on the Mount. So this is who he's talking about here. Much more could be said on that passage. Let's keep going, though, because we've got other passages we want to deal with. And the next one is the unpardonable sin. We can find this in Matthew chapter 12. So flip your Bibles a few pages over to Matthew chapter 12. And again, let's read the punchline, and then let's kind of get, work up to it. So Matthew chapter 12, verse 31, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. And so this is known uh, by many as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the unpardonable sin. You'll hear people talk about this. And they'll say that this is something that can cause you to lose your salvation. There is a lot of confusion surrounding this verse. And I can't tell you over the years, the hundreds of conversations, hundreds in the hundreds of conversations that I've had with people who, number one, believe that Jesus died for their sins and rose again. Number two, believe that as a result of that, they could be 100% sure that they're going to heaven. But then number three, when I follow up with a question, something like this, do you think there's anything you could do to lose it? And this is where hundreds of people over the years, just in personal conversations say, well, yeah, if you, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, I think you can lose your salvation. And I'll say, well, how do you do that? Or what is that? And, and I, to this day, I've never had anybody give me an answer. They're like, I don't know, <laughs> but you don't wanna do it. Like, that's kind of the deal. Like, I don't know what it is, but you don't wanna do it because you could really you know, endanger your eternal um, salvation. And I, and I don't say that to, to make fun. I, I really don't. I just say that to illustrate the confusion. In fact, there may even be some here. It's like, wow, I've never, yeah, I've never even considered <laughs> that. I, you know, maybe, I thought maybe you could. I mean, so let's find out what this thing is, right? So, but this is obviously a passage that many people go to and say, look, I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, if you do it, you're losing your salvation. There's no way you can go to heaven. Again, as we kind of considered the, the context and flow of the book of Matthew as it related to the Sermon on the Mount. This is the section of the book, this is a section of history that the religious Jewish leaders are peaking. They're reaching their peak of their rejection of Jesus Christ. Very, very important to understand this passage. This is where it happens. In fact, if you look at chapter 13, and I don't wanna go too far ahead, but this is in chapter 13 is when Jesus begins to teach in parables. He begins to disguise his teaching for those who are believers. And there's a, there's some reasoning behind this. This is also the point in the book where Jesus for the first time personally begins to describe and talk about his death and resurrection. Before that, his emphasis is the kingdom. But after Matthew chapter 12, you're gonna see him begin to talk about how he's gonna to have to go to Jerusalem. He's gonna be betrayed. The chief priests and the Pharisees are gonna put him to death, but he's gonna rise again. This is kind of where that shift happens in the book of Matthew. So we've gotta understand contextually, this is the peak. This is probably the event that, that tipped it over, whereas we read about, as I mentioned earlier in John 1, he came to his own and his own received him not, This is the tipping over point right here. We're about to read in Matthew chapter 12. So it's very key to understand for the following reasons. This is very important contextually to understand. At this point in Jesus's ministry, he had been performing messianic miracles. And when I say messianic miracles, that means Old Testament prophets said, the Messiah, when he comes, he'll do this, 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 and this. Totally prophesied what he'd be doing. Incredible things like healing lepers, which had never been done. You know, it's, it's so interesting because you, when, when God gives the Mosaic Law back in Exodus 20 and following, he puts a provision in there for when a leper is healed, this is what they're to do. They're to go back to the temple. They're to offer this sacrifice, show themselves to the priest. The priest then has to declare them clean. And you know what? For thousands of years, that was, that was an irrelevant part of the law. It didn't even, it was not even used. It's like, why did God even put that in there? Like, this is never gonna happen. The reason he put it in there is because the Messiah would heal lepers. And what does Jesus tell a leper after he heals him? Go and show yourself to the priest. Go and offer what's prescribed in the law. So God, God knew what he was gonna do. He knew how he was gonna validate and verify Jesus's ministry. And you know what? He had been doing messianic miracles for two years. One of the coolest things about the book of John, I, don't, I won't go there, but at the very end, John says basically this. Let me, let me summarize it in modern parlance. I just picked certain miracles to share with you so that you would believe that Jesus is the name of the Son of God. And then he says, if I recorded everything Jesus did, this is just blow you away. If all the ocean was ink, we wouldn't have enough books to write it in, is the gist of what he says. I don't know about you. I see enough here where I'm like, Jesus, you're my hero. You are the one that the Old Testament prophesied about. But you know what? If you need more proof, one day you'll have it. He did way more than even what the Jesus movies show. <laughs> like, oh, way more, way more than we could ever realize. This, this, our Savior was a machine in the way that he went about just fulfilling the will of God in his life. And he had, you think your days are busy? Nothing like Jesus Christ and what he accomplished. And he was doing this for two straight years. These people had an eyewitness front row seat seeing all of this thing. And this is the response that they're going to have. And we'll kind of look. So this is also key in uh, performing that Jesus, the the miracles that Jesus performed were designed to validate and verify not only his identity, but also that his message was true. Very important to understand. And one of the things that Jesus was preaching at the time was the gospel of the kingdom. Now, we won't get into detail here. We did an entire Sunday night message, I think two years ago, on the difference between the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of grace. When we talk about preaching the gospel now, we're not preaching the gospel of the kingdom. We're preaching the gospel of grace. Jesus died for you and rose again. That's our message. That's the gospel as we preach it. The gospel of the kingdom is slightly different. It's still good news, but what was it good news about? The physical presence of the king, he's here. The the kingdom is right at your fingertips. Jewish audience, you can The kingdom can be established. The king is here. He wants to establish it. That would have been good news for a Jewish listener. That's what they're looking for. This is the message that he's preaching. In fact, when you look at the message of the gospel of the kingdom, this is the focus of this passage. Look at Matthew 12, 28. As he's in the middle of explaining something, he says, but if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, it is here. I've got good news for you. The king is here. He wants to establish the kingdom. That was good news for that audience. And had they received the king, the kingdom, I believe, would have been established. One of the things that's really fascinating, and since we're in Matthew, well, let's flip back to chapter 11, because you gotta see this, is that these, these miracles These uh, healings, all these things that Jesus were doing were prophesied about in the Old Testament. They were God's basically exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C, exhibit ad infinitum that Jesus was the man. And and we see this because when John is cast, John the Baptist is cast in the prison, he's like, wait a minute, if this is the kingdom, I, I probably wouldn't be in prison. So maybe maybe we're supposed to be looking for somebody else. I thought it was Jesus, but maybe, maybe I mis- misread this thing. And so he sends a messenger to Jesus and we see this in Matthew 11 in verse three says to, to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Now Jesus in the way he does, and I cannot wait to speak to Jesus face to face because he does not communicate like the rest of us do. How would I answer that question? Yes. I be- yeah. Yeah. I'm him, don't, don't worry, John, I'm him. I love how Jesus answers it because he just drives his, his focus back to the word of God. Look at, look at how what he says. Jesus answered, said, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. Now, why does he go here? The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Boom, John, you know the Old Testament. This is what's going on. Connect the dots, right? I'm him. I'm the one. And so he drives his focus back. But I say that to say this, that these were designed to convince and persuade people that Jesus was who he said he was. And so when we go to verse 31, and by the time we get there, we see a couple of things in context that have happened that has caused the Pharisees, the leaders, to get to a fevered pitch where they peek out in their rejection of Jesus Christ and they consider him a lawbreaker. Chapter 12, verses one through eight, we see the story of how Jesus and his disciples were hungry. They plucked heads of grain to eat on the Sabbath. Now to the Mosaic law, that's completely fine. In fact, Jesus cites an example where David did something when he was hungry. But to the Pharisee who had insulated the Mosaic law with their own set of laws, they considered that harvesting. You pick, you pick a little grain as you're walking. Through. Oh, you're harvesting. You're breaking the Sabbath. And so they thought that Jesus was a lawbreaker. We also see in Matthew 12, 9 through 13, that he healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. We don't know exactly what else happened here, but, but notice in verse 15, it says, but when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there and a great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. I mean, what is that? Three of them, 300 of them. I mean, it's just, again, these are the things we're gonna find out about when we get to, to see him, I hope. I mean, it'd be kind of cool. I hope the first million years, it's like we just sit down and watch a movie of the rest of Jesus's life when we get to heaven. That would be a blast, wouldn't it? Just to, just to be more in love and amazed by this one whom we trust with our eternal salvation. But So there's a lot more stuff going on, but then we finally get, to the passage. He heals a demon-possessed, blind and mute man, and he does it on the Sabbath. And let's kind of pick up there in verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him. So that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw, and all the multitudes were amazed uh, and said, could this be the son of David? very incredible healing here. Not only do we see he's demon possessed, but that demon was causing this, this man's blindness and his, his muteness. He couldn't speak. And so when they see this, the, the, the crowds, they see this, they go, they just start to question to themselves and out loud, wow, could this be the, the son of David? And what are they saying there? Could this be the Messiah? Why would they say that? Because they knew the Old Testament. They knew what had been prophesied about that this man would do. Could Jesus be the Messiah? Now, as the Pharisees walk around, they kind of they hear this. They, they're like, ooh, this is not good. They're starting to believe in this guy. They're starting to consider whether or not he's a Messiah. So in verse 24, we see that the Pharisees, when they heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons, and you know what's really interesting there is they can't deny the miracles. They can't say, "Oh, he didn't do that. he didn't do that," because if they said that, what would everyone say? Yes, he did. We just... What are you talking about? You know, get out of here. But they don't say that. So the next best thing they do is what? They try to discredit the man. Wow that that sounds like a familiar playbook in our life, geopolitically, all all sorts of everywhere else, right? Can't disprove the thought, can't provide a sound argument against it. Let's just discredit the person. And that's what they're doing here. They're discrediting him. And not only are they discrediting him, but they are accusing Jesus of something very heinous. Not that he was doing miracles to gain a following, not that he was doing miracles to make himself better than God, but that he was actually participating in the wiles or the schemes of the devil himself, that he was a servant of the devil. That's what is, he's being accused of, that he performed his miracles through the power of Beelzebub. Now, this was a rejection of a couple of things to just kind of review. It was a rejection, not only of the validity of Jesus's miracle, but ultimately a rejection of him and his purpose. It was also rejection of God's offer of the kingdom. Why do I say that? Because they're rejecting the king can't have the, hey, God, we'll take your kingdom, but we don't want your king. That just doesn't work that way. To reject the king meant to reject the kingdom. And so Jesus goes through in this very logical way in verses 25 through 30, and basically says, look, if I'm doing miracles by the power of Satan, why would I be destroying or opposing Satan's work? If I'm on Satan's side, I don't want less people demon-possessed. I want more people demon-possessed. See the the logic? He just kind of works his way through that passage, and then he gets to verse 31. Therefore, right? And we always talk about that biblically, that that's a very important transition. So based on the accusation that Jesus did miracles by the power of Satan, what he goes on to say in verse 31 is that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. So in Jesus' estimation, any type of missing the mark, any type of sin that exists out there, I joke big sin or little sin, but God doesn't categorize it that way. We do. But any sin can be forgiven. And then any type of speech that denigrates or defames another, that's what the word blasphemy means, can be forgiven or dismissed by God very important to understand conceptually what he's saying. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But there's one type of denigrating speech that will will not be forgiven. What is that? Well, I want you to notice in your text, and sometimes we, we bring attention to this, but the word the is there. It's the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven men. It's not a blasphemy. It's not just blasphemy in general, but it specifically says the blasphemy of the Spirit. It's speaking of a very specific type of blasphemy here. And I'll have people say, well, you know, yeah, basically, I, in, in terms of trying to explain it, well, I think the blasphemy of the Spirit is anytime the Spirit of God's working and you oppose it, then that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. No, that would be a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, or that would be a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I don't believe that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about the blasphemy. Very specific, very unique to this content context. And I think that he's speaking not of any type of defamation against the Spirit, but specifically a unique one that's going on in this passage. And so what's unique? What's specific as it relates to this context? Well, a couple of things. The Jewish religious leaders are speaking evil of the Holy Spirit of God, Who is performing, and this is very, very key, I think, to the context. He's performing and providing the power for all of the miracles that Jesus is doing. And not only that, this was very specific because it can only be committed during Jesus's first advent. Jesus was here, in person, the miracles he were doing were empowered by the Spirit of God, and that is what they were rejecting. That is what they were criticizing. These are prophesied messianic miracles performed by the Spirit of God, and they are denigrating him. Not only even saying they're not from God, they're saying they're from Satan. You see, it's not just a, a, a negative criticism. It's like a, a super negative criticism, because now he's saying it's not even the Holy Spirit. It's Satan that's doing these things. And you know, this is again, because of his physical presence and then the fact that he's accomplishing prophesied Messianic miracles by means of the Holy Spirit. And so the unpardonable sin, therefore, was identifying these miracles as being empowered by Satan himself. Now, can somebody commit this sin today? No, because Jesus is not here, He's not performing prophesied messianic miracles today by means of the Holy Spirit. So I don't believe this is a sin that can be committed. Now I do believe that there's an unpardonable sin. I believe that there is a sin that you can commit that will never be forgiven. And that is the sin of unbelief. Because the the penalty for sin has been completely paid for. And what you're gonna find is that being a homosexual won't send you to hell. Being a, a womanizer or a rapist won't send you to hell. Being a drunk, being a drug addict won't send you to hell. Being a trans. Pans, I mean, name them all, right? Won't send you to hell. What sends people to hell is their rejection of Jesus Christ as their substitute, as their savior. And I'm not saying they have to do it even with anger or with their teeth clenched. I've met a lot of old ladies over the years that are very sweet old ladies who reject Jesus Christ because they're trusting in their own goodness. They're trusting in their own religion. They're trusting in their own church. They're trusting in their ability to light candles, their ability to pray, their ability to do all sorts of things. But because they're trusting in those things, they are rejecting the one and only Son of God who did something for them that only He could accomplish, and that's pay their sin debt and provide them with a righteousness equal to God's righteousness. Very important to understand. And so as we look at this, I want to introduce a topic, and next week I want to continue on this topic. And and many people, when it comes to belief, they will also have an objection as it relates to eternal security. And it kind of goes something like this. They'll, they'll say that if someone has an abrupt change in their faith, in other words, they reject Jesus Christ or they lack a continual or ongoing belief, they believe they can be condemned or lose their salvation. And the way it works is something like this is somebody, well, yeah, they, they put their faith in Christ, but if I ever reject Jesus in the future, I can lose it. That's what some people will say. Or it'll be a flavor of that. If I don't go on continuing to believe, then, then I can lose it. Or again, they'll come through the other door, which says the same thing. And that is, if I don't continue to believe, then I never had it to begin with. (laughs) So you end up in the same spot. And let me just make a couple of introductory comments. And like I said, we wanna get into this in more detail next week. But one reason that some consider this view, I believe, is due to a lack of understanding of the transactional nature of justification. Now, when I talk about transactional nature. I'm not trying to to reduce God's salvation to eating at Whataburger, or, or you guys don't know what Whataburger, you know, maybe some of y'all from Texas do. Anyways, eating at a restaurant, right? McDonald's, how about that one? Everyone knows McDonald's. I'm not trying to reduce it to that level, but I am trying to take that concept and communicate it. Because when we talk about a transaction, a transaction happens at a point in time, when conditions are agreed upon and met by at least two parties. That's a transaction. You do this, I do this, agreed, and then I take the result of whatever that is or you take the result of whatever the transaction is. And so in the case of salvation, Jesus died for our sins and rose again, thereby paying our sin debt in full. And now he offers eternal life and forgiveness to anyone who puts their faith in him. And the moment somebody puts their faith in him, the transaction is sealed. They get the benefit of what he did, period. It's transactional in that way. And this is how God describes it. Just as if you were buying a meal with a credit card. Just as if you were buying something at the grocery store. Just like that. Once the debt has been paid, once that payment has been credited to my account, there's no way that the payment is taken back and thus reappearing on my account. You know, I just, just as a closing il- illustration, you know, if I, if I went out to multiple lunches with a good friend of mine, and let's just say over the years, every time I went to, to lunch, this guy was like a, a stealth ninja. He grabbed the bill every single time. I could never even get the bill. Like he's somehow I had this wink with the waitress or waiter and he just got the bill every single time. I never paid for it. But let's say that, that for some reason in the future, I had a big falling out with this friend. Let's just say that we didn't even talk. I rejected him. Even if my wife said his name, I got mad at her. You know, it was just really, really bad. Let me ask you this. Would I then go back? Would I have to go back to every restaurant that we had eaten at and paid for my bill? Is that how that works? Once I reject him, then everything before transactionally is just off the table, right? I have to go back and do that? No, of course not. That food's been paid. I couldn't even give it back up if I upchucked it all back up for him and say, yeah, you can repackage that and sell it to someone else. It, it's gone. It's been digested. There's nothing left. Why? Because a transaction was made. When my friend said, your food costs 1099, I'm paying for it. Done deal. Transaction happened. I ate the food and I lived to, to tell the story, right? And I, my body digested it. I would never have to go back and make further payment even if our friendship fell out even if I rejected that person ever being in my life again. And so salvation is a transactional event. And so we're going to look at that in more detail next week as we consider belief, either continuing belief or rejection of Christ. And we want to show that even that cannot cost anybody their salvation. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for this morning. These are, these are passages, Lord, that cause a lot of confusion. I'm not overly confident that we cleared everything up for everybody this morning. But Lord, my, my heart's desire really coming away is that we would be, each one of us, just more and more convinced, more and more persuaded that what Jesus accomplished was enough. And may you just take what was said this morning and filter through it all and just exalt your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.